Does anyone feel the earthquake? Aren't those fun? I love earthquakes. That's why Southern California is the best place to live. I mean, tornadoes, they just destroy things. But earthquakes, those are like a roller coaster. We were watching TV and we were watching the news and... um, they were talking about the earthquakes, and they had the seismograph there, and, and all of a sudden they see the seismograph go, and they hadn't felt it yet because they were a number of miles away. They said, okay, in about 20 seconds, we're going to feel this one. And you wait, and you wait, and sure enough, the, the studio must be closer to here because at the same time they started to feel it, they counted it down, we started to feel it, and they, they can predict earthquakes. 20 seconds, baby. And, and that is considered good for earthquakes, right? Because at least you have some warning then. And it was interesting, though, to watch this, this prediction happen. But life isn't that way, is it? Can we predict what happens tomorrow? Do you know exactly what's going to happen in your life tomorrow? No. If you say yes, talk to me. We'll work out a, a best-selling book or something. I don't know. We, we, 20 seconds is good for us because we're not in control of this world and we can't control the circumstances around us. And so to predict the future with accuracy, absolute accuracy, is impossible without God. So at, at the top of your notes, and you may have to do it under point one, which we'll get to. I know I haven't filled in that blank. Take out a pen or put on your thinking caps. If you're in your app, you can open up and, and edit your notes. I think we do have a version event live. Um, I want you to think about something. What are your top two plans for the week? What are the top two plans that you have for this coming week? Maybe it's today. Maybe it's throughout the week. Then I want you to think, what are your top two plans for the year and top two plans for the next five years? Okay? And we can't take all all morning. So so just, just start thinking that way. Write down a couple if you want. Top two plans for the week, for the year, for five years. Okay, getting those down? Give me a couple for the week. Keep the kid alive. We support you in that. Um, we, we are with you with that. I hope that one comes true. Uh, sleep. Yes. Congratulations, by the way, on your granddaughter. But um, I know you haven't gotten a lot of sleep. Someone else, plans for the next, what? VBS. Amen. We start VBS tomorrow and we have 100, 120 kids here that are being discipled and are hearing the gospel. And that's a plan for this week. Another plan for this week? Go see Spider-Man. Okay. Anyone going to the picnic today? Yeah, lots of hands. And if you're not, raise your hand anyway and come. Um, your plans just changed. But we, we like to make plans, and these are good things that we're expecting and, and, and important things that we're expecting. But what happens if your plans change? What happens if you come to this week and nothing you plan for this week works out? And life has a way of throwing us those curveballs and things change, and, and we're not sure what to do because we are not in control of our plans. And this morning, as we get into James, James is going to hit the issue of control. 
And he's been talking about, okay, what does a 24-7 faith look like? What does real faith look like in real life? And I've really appreciated how practical James is. I, I hope you have too. I mean, he's talking about how we argue with each other and how we judge each other, how we speak and, and our attitudes. And the, the theme, the thread that's been woven throughout James is our desires, our self, is the cause of so much of what happens. Remember all the way in chapter 1, he said, if you're tempted, don't blame Satan. Oh no, Satan said, or don't blame God. Oh, God tempted me. It's your desires that you've let run away with you. He talked about arguing. He says, why do you argue? It's because you want and you don't have. It's your desires. And so he keeps coming back to this, this issue of self and this issue of letting self rule in our hearts. And he's going to come there today too, because self and pride really are root causes of just about every sin. And, and he is doing a masterful job of taking these practical areas of our life, even how we speak to one another, and say, is, the, is that just dripping with self, or is it dripping with love for others? And this morning he gets to a topic of our plans that I think meddles more than most. And maybe that's my personality, because I like to have a plan. I like to know what's going to happen. I like to know when it's going to happen and make sure it happens when it's supposed to happen. And God challenges that and says, yeah, it's great to plan, but he's the master planner. We're just making temporary plans. And so he meddles here with things that we hold tightly to our our plans and our our expectations and our hopes. So turn with me to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we'll be looking at 13 through 17, just five verses, so we should be done in plenty of time. (laughs) James chapter 4, 13 through 17. We want to look at what God's Word has to say. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover one under a seat right around you on one of those trays. We'd love for you to take that. If you don't have one at home, take that home with you because we want you to have God's Word. James 4, 13 through 17. We'll read the text and then we'll dive in. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Lord God, we ask that you bless your word. Lord, today I ask that you you convict us with your word, that you expose areas that we hold to self and hold dearly that we haven't given to you, even if that's our plans, expectations, and hopes. Lord, help us to live a real faith in real life that shows that we are following you. In your name, amen. And so we we come to this passage, and right away in verse 13, we see where he's going with it. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And point number one in your notes is, be careful of self-confidence in your own plans and expectations about the future. Be careful of self-confidence in your own plans and expectations about the future. And James does this by drawing us in, come now, listen up. He uses this and in the next section. 
And, and he's basically saying, hey, you who like to plan, you planners, pay attention to this. Now, we should all pay attention to this, but how many of you have planners or are planners? You're just a planner. Anyone have like a, a planner notebook? Few people. I, I know now we have our phones. Anyone keep any plans on your phones? Yeah, okay. We're planners because we like to think we have it all planned out. We like to think that we have our own plans and, and we, we have a path because we want to accomplish what we want to accomplish. And often, even people that aren't planners actually are in some sense. They still have hopes and expectations. Maybe they don't have the five-point outline of how to get there with three subpoints under each one down to the minute. You laugh. Some of you are like that. But we all have hopes and expectations. So this passage is for all of us. For all of us that have ever said, I've got it all planned out. I've got life under control. I know what's going on. And, and he starts by saying, come now who you say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town. And the we will is a key phrase in this verse. Because the, the wording there is one of, very, of, of high confidence. This will happen. In fact, in some of your translations, they even repeat the we will on each of the phrases. Because that's just a key to understanding this verse. And the idea is, this will happen because I've planned it. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. I know where I'm going. Nothing's going to get in the way. I'm going there. I'm going to spend a year there. I'm, gonna, I'm in control of my time. I'm going to trade and I'm going to make a profit. And so the context here is James is using an example of a businessman who is going from town to town, a traveling merchant, and trades his wares. And, and he's using that as an example we can all understand and we can all relate to. And this person has a plan. And this person has a great plan. And they are confident it's going to happen. They're planning where they will go, how long they will be there, and that they're going to do just fine financially. Now, any of you who have ever done a business venture, there are no guarantees in a business venture, right? Uh, you, you, more businesses fail than succeed. And, and so even that part of this is, I'm going to make a profit. This is good. One author said there's a certainty here. And, and, and see the we will as a certainty. There's a certainty of future where we will go, a certainty of place into such and such a town, a certainty of time, spend a year, Certainty of activity, trade, or carry on business, some of the translations say. And a certainty of result, make a profit. Now, if we could be that certain about life, wouldn't life be perfect? Wouldn't it be great? But we can't. Can you be certain of your future? Can you be certain of where you'll be every moment this week? Can you be certain of how you're going to spend your time? Certain of what you're going to do and certain that you're going to be well off financially? No, and so James is drawing a man into a, a common a way of working and a common understanding of merchants and saying, this kind of self-confidence, this is what I want to deal with. Now, he's going to deal with it in the coming verses. And so for this point, I just said, be careful of this because James is getting our attention to this. He's saying, be careful of thinking you have it all planned out. Be careful of thinking that you know everything that is best for you to do this week. You know, we, we, we do this, right? We have an education plan 
when we're in high school, at least we should be thinking about an education plan in college. And so we have an education plan. Then we have a marriage plan. And, and we know exactly when God is supposed to bring us a spouse and what they should look like and how tall they should be. And then we have a plan for kids. And we know, well, I'm going to be, I'm going to be married for 3.5 years. And then we're going to start trying. And within two months, we'll be pregnant. And we're going to have kids. And we're going to have 2.3 kids, which is always a little creepy. But um, we make these plans. And then we make plans for a career path. I'm going to start in this job and maybe I'll do a lateral move to another company or maybe I'll be able to have a future at this company. And we make these plans that we can become so certain in. And one of the ways that we know that we're certain in them is how high are our expectations of them? What value do we place on expectations? And sometimes, I'm going to say this a couple times this morning, one of the greatest tests of how much self is involved in planning and expectations is what we would do if it didn't work out. What if our plans got messed up? What if you find out you can't have children? What do we do then? How angry are we or how upset are we? How do we deal with that? What if the right spouse doesn't come along at the right time when we say it should happen and we tell God when it should happen? What if the right job doesn't come along? Or what if we're moving up through a company and then suddenly through a round of layoffs, we find ourselves back at the bottom? And the what if, what would we do if our plans were stripped away gives us an idea of how tightly we hold them. Because if that is devastating, if that rocks our world, then we're probably holding them near and dear to our hearts in, in maybe some unhealthy ways. I'm not saying that, that when our plans change, we're not frustrated, we're not upset sometimes. But how can we move past that? How can we give that to God? See, as you look at even verse 13, these plans aren't necessarily bad plans. But what's missing? What's missing as you read verse 13? God. There is no reference to God in this. No reference in serving God. No reference in asking God for for wisdom. No reference in God's will. God is missing out of the equation. They are leaving God out of their plans. And yes, I do know the next few verses, so I know that's where James is going. And, And really, if we plan without God, we are planning with a secular worldview. It is a secular worldview to plan our lives for all these great things and never ask the question, what does God want me to do? That, that's a problem. And so the planning isn't planning, the problem isn't planning, it's planning without God. Because when we plan without God, there's a certainty in self, our trust is in self rather than in God. We think we are in control of our lives and destiny. And we have this illusion that we can somehow manage our lives. And it's ridiculous. We can't bear up under that pressure. And we will fall apart if we try. Now this is one of those things that James, and we're going to see this all the way, especially through through verse 17. I'm not sure this sin is so much intentionally ignoring God as just never thinking to include Him. Right? Right? I mean, none of us go to make plans and say, I am purposely not going to include God because I'm going to have more success that way. No, we, we're too smart for that. But we live as practical atheists when we never include God. When we just forget to include Him. That's a sign that He isn't the center of our lives. That He isn't what we, the values that we base our lives on. 
And here, the focus isn't God, it's on profit. It's on doing well. And, and there's, there's a tie here to materialism, and that's, that's not completely where James is going, but he definitely is addressing in this first verse the idea that materialism is the, the goal here, doing well. And, and let me just talk to you as parents for a moment, because I, I think we all struggle with materialism, but it shows up when we start to parent. It shows up when we start to think, okay, what do I want my child's life to look like? And so we say things like, I want them to have a good life. I want them to have a better life than I had, a better job, a better salary. I'm going to challenge us. I don't think that's the goal of Scripture. If that's our goal for our kids, you are ruining your kids. You're going to give them a good life that is independent of God. Our goal for our kids should be, will they have a life that trusts God? Are they working for God's glory? Are they going in a direction that God wants? And if we don't infuse that into our parenting, if it's all about as soon as they're born, standing in line for the right preschool and then signing them up for the right elementary school and and getting into the right college and having the best career, if that is our goal, you are destroying your children. Good job. And I know that's hard to hear in a society that's so materialistic. But and, And yes, as parents, we want good things for our kids, but that's not the best thing. And if those things are independent of God, they have no hope. And so we need to start teaching our kids to trust God. That it's okay for plans to be changed. That it's okay to, to go somewhere, even in a job setting, to go somewhere that maybe not be the, the most advantageous financially, but where we think is the best opportunity to reach people for Christ. It's okay to live in an area that seems like it's falling apart because we know that California needs Jesus. It needs God but we want to give our kids the best life. I think we're falling into the trap that James is is talking about here of materialism and plans, and we're planning for the wrong things. We've got to get real about this. The sovereignty of God, the work of God, is greater than our plans, and it's greater than our ability to make them happen. And so if I don't include him in the planning process, I am not including the only one that can make them happen. And so James starts by saying, be careful of self-confidence in our own plans. Be careful about expectations of the future. It's a rebuke of self-sufficiency. And, and, and this rebuke hits me hard because I like to be self-sufficient. I don't like to rely on anyone. I don't like to get help from anyone. And James says, okay, let's talk about self-sufficiency. You'll do this. You'll do that. You're leaving God out of the picture. And I was trying to think through this week, okay, why do we hold our plans so, so closely? Why are they so dear to us? Why do we get so angry and so frustrated when they're not met? And, and I think there's a lot of reasons. I think that's a big question. That's a great question to just ponder this week. One of them is we really do like the illusion of control. Because if I'm in control, I'm best. I, I elevate self above all else. And so we like the illusion of control. And some of the things that that helps us do, it helps us protect self, right? 
If I can be in control, I can make sure nothing ever hurts me. I can make sure nothing ever hurts my kids. Which again, if that's our goal, to not have them be hurt in life, we are harming them. Nothing ever bad is going to happen to me. Well, how does that work out? I can remember every time we'd, especially early in marriage, every time we'd get a little bit of savings. Anyone else ever have this? Something would happen and the savings would be gone. Every stinking time. And we're like, okay, why save? Now, that's not the answer. (laughs) Because, praise God, he allowed us to pay for those things. But it seemed like our plans kept getting frustrated and frustrated and frustrated. There was no protecting self. In a fallen world, there is no protecting self. God can protect us, but we can't do that. And ultimately, as I thought through why we hold our plans so closely, I think it's because I want what I want. The heart wants what the heart wants. And if I can hold my plans closely and I can make them happen, I can get what I want and I'll be happy. Except it doesn't work out that way. These are the things God wants us to let go of. The illusion of control, the protection of self, getting what we want. These are all not our job. They're God's job. He will give us what we need. He will give us what is good for us. He will protect us. But we keep putting ourselves and our plans in the place of God. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 34, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And he's talking about how worked up we get about our plans, how worked up we get about protecting ourselves and things. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for today is its own trouble. And he goes on to talk about how he provides. And so James starts with just a a great little example that says, be careful of your self-confidence in your plans. Then we go to verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And this is where he's going to bring reality in. Boom. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And this is such an important verse because point number two, this is how we counter self-confidence. We counter this this sinful, self-confident, prideful attitude by considering how little control we actually have in in, in our lives. We counter self-confidence by considering how little control we actually have in our lives. Those of you that are a little more seasoned, is that true? Do we have less control than we think? Yeah. Yeah. I think as as we get older, as we experience life, we realize, man, I'm not in charge of my life. And so the way that James is doing this is by bringing us to reality of life. And he focuses on two things. If you look at the verse, the first half and the second half, he focuses on the uncertainty of life and the shortness of life. Okay, if we're going to get real about life and our illusion of control, let's consider the uncertainty of life and the shortness of life. And so he starts with, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. On Thursday, you didn't know there would be an earthquake on Friday and Saturday and tomorrow. Oh, no, no, I can't say that. We didn't know those things. If you've walked in and gotten a a layoff slip from the office, you didn't know that was coming. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. 
We can't predict the future with accuracy. It's absurd to think we can. And, and James is using an argument from the smaller to the larger here. If I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, isn't it a little absurd that say, for me to say I can control what happens in five years? No, no. If, if I can't even do the little thing like tomorrow, then I can't think that I control five years from now. And so he appeals to the uncertainty of life to get our pride in check and, and to get our, our hold of our plans in check. See, we desire and we predict and we plan and then we get angry when our expectations aren't met. Which is sort of silly since we aren't the ones in, in control. We are setting ourselves up for frustration when we hold plans firmly and we don't have the authority to make them happen. You know, in business, we talk a lot about having authority match responsibility. And when you give someone responsibility, you give them the authority to be able to carry out that responsibility or else they'll be frustrated in their job and they'll probably quit. Well, when we take plans and put pile on all these expectations and hopes and dreams and our plans must succeed... That's a responsibility we've created for ourselves, and we don't have the authority to even do that. And so we're setting ourselves up for failure. And so James says, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. Proverbs 27.1, a proverb that James may have been thinking about as he wrote this, says, do not boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring. I mean, this is, this is a, a timeless proverb. And then the second half there is he goes to the shortness of life. What is life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I think of the, the old pot on the stove that whistles when it gets hot and the steam would come out. How long could you see that steam? Maybe a couple seconds. And James is saying that's what your life is like. It's this mist. It's this steam. And so he's showing in the big picture of all of history, our lives are just a little tiny blip. And he's saying, really, you have a short little life. Don't think too highly of yourself. Now there's a balance to that because when we give that short little blip to God and do what He wants, He can do something great with it. But the idea here is it's just very short. Anything can end at any time. He mentions it appears, speaking of birth. It vanishes, speaking of death. If you think of steam, it just blows anywhere, right? It's uncertain, and that comes back to the uncertainty of life. What about steam and mist? Can you grasp it? Can you hold on to it? You try to cup it in your hand and look at it. It's not there. And James is also saying life... We can't control it. We can't grasp it. And, and if we just stop at this point, this is just a really depressing passage. Don't, don't make your own plans. They're going to fail without God. Life is uncertain and life is short. And, and that's just a fatalistic view. But like I said, this doesn't mean life doesn't matter. It more drives us to make great choices to let God make it matter. A gentleman from from the world I used to be in, Steve Jobs, who who created Apple, and he's not a believer, so we're not going to get a lot of great wisdom from him. But one of the things he often said, and he said in a graduation speech, he said that every day I remember that I'll be dead soon. 
And that helps me make better choices. A really interesting concept that actually is biblical of saying life is short, so I better make the wisest choices I can. As the psalmist says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so here James is bringing us back to the shortness of life, the uncertainty of life and the shortness of life. These things keep us from being arrogant. We're not actually in control and life is short. And, and so these attack the very root of, of the sin of, of over-planning or holding our plans in a self-confident way. Our plans are always tentative. Always. Because we don't have the ability to make them permanent. Passage that, that we read in worship this morning, and just listen to this parable, Luke twelve fifteen through 21. I think we'll have it on the screen. And, and, and again, I think James is reflecting on the teachings of Christ as he writes, and this one is definitely infused into this passage. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And he told them, Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He had a great plan. He wasn't going to have to work anymore. He could sit and watch sports, watch the Dodgers all, all year. Well, three quarters of the year. Maybe play some Xbox the other quarter. And, and he knew it. He had certainty. I will do this. And in verse 20, But God said to him, Fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, where will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And again, we see the combination of planning and materialism. Self versus living for God. And God says, you don't know what's going to happen. You're gone tonight. Then how are your plans doing? This helps us be humble in our approach to our plans. And so then in 15, the, hint, the, the middle verse in this passage, the key verse Real faith in real life intentionally includes God in our planning. And this is the answer. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And James is saying, so instead of thinking you have it all under control, instead of having this, this false self-confidence, we should be saying, if God wills. I'll even live. Interesting, we will live at the will of God. It's not just I'm going to do that, this or that. That's the second one. If the Lord wills, I'll even live to see tomorrow. If the Lord wills, I'll be able to, to, to execute these plans. If the Lord wills, I'll be able to go to VBS and work in VBS. If the Lord wills, we'll be able to have a picnic today. It's an attitude of gratitude to Him, of reliance on Him, and asking for direction in whatever we do. And, and I know that this can get crazy, because if I come to the steps and say, okay, God, do you want me to step that way or that way? I'm going to spend a half hour in prayer. Okay, this way. 
You know, that's not what I'm talking about. And we can take this to this absurd extreme, but it's more an attitude of the direction of life. And, and, and we talk about this as an elder board. God, give us eyes to see who we should talk to. That directs our steps, right? Help us to notice if someone's alone. Help us to notice if someone needs prayer on Sunday morning. Help us to notice people. That then is an attitude of asking God into our plans, letting Him be the central part of what we decide to do. That's what James is talking about. If the Lord wills, I'll I'll live. If the Lord wills, I'll do this or that. It's a constant attitude of saying, how can I use the moments I'm in right now for the glory of God? How can I praise Him? Now, and it's an attitude of, of humility in that. I also need to give the, the other caution. This isn't just a phrase we add on to make everything okay. We don't want to go out today and have every sentence end with, well, if the Lord wills. Okay, I, I'm going to, if the Lord wills. <clears throat> now, that's an attitude. But the words aren't ma- a magic incantation that will suddenly... And why do we, why would we do that that way? Get God to bless our plans and do what I want. Twisted. We, we, we can twist this so easily because we're humans. So let me give another example of sometimes a phrase that become magic words that we don't think about. We pray. How do we end our prayer? In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, have you ever thought about what that means? Is that just some stamp of approval on our prayer? Okay, it's in Jesus' name. Yes, I get my my new job. I get my $1,000. I mean, Jesus' name means under his reputation, under his authority, I am seeking his will. That is a heavy statement to end prayer with. And I'm afraid we throw it away. I throw it away so many times. And it becomes habit. If the Lord wills is the attitude we should have. How do we do this? Always be thinking, what does he want me to do? Always be seeking his will. What does he want out of this situation? What will God accomplish here? I also, I like a question with that. What does God desire? Because I think we, we separate will and desire sometimes. What would make God happy in this situation? Now I'm starting to think with the mind of Christ. I already mentioned what will bring him the most glory and what will bring me the most opportunity to bring him glory. I think especially of men as they're choosing jobs and career paths. Is it about the money or is it about the opportunity to serve God? And, and, and maybe at work, but maybe not at work. I've seen guys take jobs that would allow them to do the ministries in the church they felt God had called them to. And take pay cuts to be able to do this. And, and, and to the world sense, that is ludicrous planning. But to God, he, it's not a pay cut. And, and he's got the reward coming. But it's a mindset that constantly is saying, what does God want out of the situation? How can I please him? And, and, and it makes sense, right? He's the only one that knows what tomorrow has. He's the only one that can, can orchestrate the events of tomorrow. So why wouldn't I seek him? couple verses, Psalm 37, 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him 
and He will act. And the idea is giving our plans to Him, releasing them to Him. That's not just saying, I'm going to tell God my plans so He knows how to act. But it's giving them to Him and committing them so He can inform them. You can read Proverbs 16 as well. It goes on to say the same thing. Our God is the sovereign creator of all things. Trust Him with tomorrow. Trust Him with your plans. Seek Him for your plans. And we see examples of this all over the New Testament. I don't know, as you read the New Testament, just be looking for how many times the, the, the people, the characters of the New Testament seek God's will. In Acts 18.21, Paul is, is figuring out where to go. But on taking leave of them, he says, I will return to you if God wills. And he sets sail from Ephesus. In Romans 1.10, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. We see this in Paul's life all over. He makes plans and the Holy Spirit redirected and changed. 1 Corinthians 4.19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. Hebrews 6.3 even And this is about teaching and going deeper and what God wants for His church. And, his, and, and the author said, and this we will do if God permits. And there's this, this flow of, of idea that it's always under if God permits, if this is God's will. Now, they didn't always say it verbally. There are times Paul didn't say, okay, Lord willing, and, and then, oh man, I forgot to say it. No, there's times he didn't say it, but it was still his attitude. And we see God changing a direction. And the way that we know that's his heart is because he was okay with God's change of plans. He was okay with it. And, and he went with it. See, it's got to be an attitude, not just magic words. John Calvin talks about this, and he, he, he said this. We read everywhere in the Scriptures that the holy servants of God spoke unconditionally of future things. When yet they had it a fixed principle. So they would say, this is what I'm going to do, or this is what we know. But yet they had a fixed principle in their minds that they could do nothing without the permission of God. And so we step out in faith, but know that God can direct. And God can give permission, and God can change plans. And if God changes our plans, we want Him to. We want Him to. It's better than fighting God. So we write our plans in pencil and we give God the pen. He's the only one that gets to write in pen. And that should be our attitude to all of our hopes and our dreams and our expectations. That's a real 24-7 faith that trusts God with our future, with our tomorrow. Yeah, we'll trust Him with eternity, but do we trust Him with next week? In your notes, I put DV. And, and the, the early church and the church throughout the ages often... Um, use DV as initials for Deo Valente. And they would put that on things or they would put that on plans. And it's Latin for God willing. And what a marvelous I, way to remember this. So they'd write out their plans. They just put DV at the end. Just a rem- not as magic words, but a reminder that they are coming under the authority of God. We need to submit our plans to God. Just one side note, if God never changed our plans, he would never bring anything new into our life. He would never bring any new blessings into our life. Really, do we want to live just with our own plans? 
Or do we want to give God permission to do some incredible things in our lives? Two more verses. 16 says, as it is, comes back to, to the truth of how it actually is. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And this corresponds with verse 14. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And, and understand the weight of this verse. Point number four is, it is prideful and evil when we think we are responsible for the plans and successes in our lives. It is prideful and evil when we think we are responsible for the plans and successes in our lives. Now, now that's, that's it. To call it evil, okay, prideful, yeah, I get. That's one of those easy sins that we can admit. It's not really that bad, we think. But James here says, no, no, it is evil to have this kind of approach to your plans, to have this kind of self-confidence, to think you have it together, to get upset at God when he changes your plans. That is evil because pride is the root of it. And, and this steps on toes because being over-planning and overconfident and, and outlining our future is a value in our culture, not a sin. And God says, if you do that without me, again, planning's not wrong. Planning without God is wrong. If you do that without me, he says, that is the height of arrogance. You are actually placing yourself on equal ground with God, and it is idolatry. Man, that should step on our toes, village. And, and this verse goes on to talk about if we brag about it. Yeah, I did that. Yeah, I accomplished that. Well, do you remember Nebuchadnezzar? Neb's walking out on his balcony one day and he looks over his kingdom and he says, look at all that I have accomplished. I am so good. Boom! Seven years as a cow. With the mind of a cow. Yeah, look what you accomplished. Have some more grass. Until he humbled himself and said, all this is from God, the creator of the universe. History is littered with guys that were confident of stupid ideas and stupid plans. In 1977, Ken Olson, founder of DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation, computer company, made big computers for business, said there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. And so they chose not to get into that, that business. Yeah, his plans weren't good. Um, Zanuck, a movie producer at 20th Century Fox in 1946, he made a plan. He made a decision for his company. He said that television wouldn't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. How many of you watch TV this week? Yeah. We could go on and on and on. Thinking through our future and planning for our future apart from God, apart from actively integrating God into every part of that plan, is sin. And we need to call it that. It's not just being overconfident. It's not just being assertive. It is evil in the sight of God. And until we see it as God sees it, we won't deal with it. Because it's just a light sin. Not a big deal. Point number five, last verse. And sometimes people are like, what is this verse doing in here? But it it ties together, and James is tying it together. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Let me read that verse again. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 
And point number five is not only do we sin when we do the wrong thing, but also when we don't do the right thing. And, and, and he's bringing up two different categories of sin. We have sins of commission, those that we actively do. I am going to lie, I am going to steal, or I am going to break the law in this way. Sins of commission, right? And we all would agree those are sin. And what James is saying is sins of omission are also sins to God. When we know what is right and we don't do it. We're just too tired. We're a little lazy. And, and that is a huge principle that James is using to culminate this thought of our plans because there's a little bit of, now that you know you should include God in your plans, now that you know the danger of, of being confident in your plans, if you don't include Him, it's sin. So you better do it. See, see this impacts our lives even in our planning. Because in my planning, I should be looking for the right thing to do. I should be giving space in my plans to love one another, to accept one another, to care for one another, to, to admonish one another, to pray with one another. If I'm not leaving time in my plans because I'm so structured, then I am sinning because I am not doing what I know is right. And that's why I think this verse is so tied with this concept. Village, we got to wrap this up. I know that a lot of us are planners. I'm a planner. And, and this, this passage just really steps on my toes. Are we okay with God taking over our plans? Are we okay with God changing our plans? At the top of your notes, I asked you to write some plans for the week, the year, and five years. What if God crossed every one of those out? What would you do? Would you be angry? Would you be mad at God? Or will you trust God? See, here's the thing. We mentioned God is sovereign. God is really good at executing His plans. We're about to celebrate communion. And think through all of history. Think through all of the Bible. The Old Testament is God bringing His plan of history to a point with Jesus Christ while Satan is trying to thwart it, while he's trying to destroy it. And God never wavered, his plan never wavered, and we came to Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world. And nothing stopped God's plan. Adam and Eve's sinning didn't stop it. The things that happened to Israel didn't stop it. The exile didn't stop it. God said, I love this people, and I am going to provide a way through my Son that they can be saved if they will repent and follow me. And, and, and sure enough, at just the right time, in just the right place, Jesus came on the scene. And he lived a perfect life, never sinning. And, and even then, in his ministry, God's plan was for a certain time and a certain place that the cross would happen. And if you read the Gospels, we keep saying it wasn't his time yet, it wasn't his time yet, it wasn't his time yet. All of that is God's sovereignty on beautiful display where God is executing His plan. And at the right time, Jesus enters Jerusalem and they arrest Him and, and they crucify Him. Not as an accident because that's what God had planned from infinity. From eternity. And He died on a cross, a sinless man, to pay the price for the sins you and I have committed. 
And three days later, just as it was always planned, he defeated death and came out of that grave and proved that our sin was completely paid for. If God can do all that, do you think he can handle your tomorrow? Do you think that he knows when your plans are messed up and my plans are messed up, but has something better for us, but has something for his glory? Do you think that that sovereign God is one that we should include in all of our planning through prayer, through an attitude? That's what we think of when we come to communion today is God's sovereign plan for us. Dear Lord God, we thank you. We praise you for your sacrifice. Lord, for your sovereign execution of your plan that nothing could stop. Lord, to bring Christ, to bring our Savior. Lord, may we trust you. May we follow you with our lives. Lord, thank you for salvation. May may we live like we're actually saved, like children of God, with real faith and real life 100% of the time. Thank you, God, for what you've done. In your name, amen. I just end you with this thought. How are you going to include God in your planning? How are you going to make sure the attitude is DV, Deo Valente, Lord willing, in everything we do? Think about that this week.